Mnookin, President of Health Freedom Defense Fund and host of Conversations on Health Freedom, a podcast about our most sacred human right. Today, my guest is Rachel Fulton Brown, an Associate Professor of History at the University of Chicago. She teaches courses on medieval religious, cultural, and intellectual history and works on and the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, one of my favorite authors. She is the author of From Judgment to Passion, Devotion to Christ and the Virgin Mary, 800 to 1200, and Mary and the Art of Prayer, The Hours of the Virgin in Medieval Christian Life and Thought. She's held fellowships from many prominent private foundations, um, and her current project is the Dragon Common Room, an online class- classroom for training poets in the arts of the Christian imagination. I'm super excited to hear about all of that, Rachel, but welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. It's great to see you again. We just saw each other in Chicago, gosh, less than a month ago for the um, um, symposium put on by yourself and a, and a group of students called um, Academia's COVID Failures. I wasn't going to talk about this, but what did you think about it? Well, it was reassuring. Um, um, certainly, one of the reasons we wanted to have it at the University of Chicago is I mean, you're associated with the university. We're obviously there. And we wanted to you know, highlight the fact that the University of Chicago is the kind of place that we can have these conversations happily. I mean, it wasn't a conversation we had as much as I think we should have over the last several years. But you know, we were able to host the conference. We had a um, number of very prominent people in the national discussion with Scott Atlas, um, Jay Bhattacharya, Todd Zwicky, um, Casey Mulligan. I'm, I'm not, all of you know the Jonathan Turley. It's a very very good turnout of people that were participating. Yourself, um, but you know, I'm sort of I'm not. Shall I say whether I'm I'm disappointed or, or encouraged that it didn't create a lot of kerfuffle on campus. It simply happened and we had our discussion. And, you know, it's it's interesting because Chicago is supposed to have been the place where, you know, academic freedom and, and debates are actually able to happen. And of course it did. So, you know, I think I think on a number of levels, it accomplished what we hoped, which was to bring together these, these very prominent voices, have the conversation and show that, in fact, if you talk about things that are, you know, sensitive and complicated for people to, to deal with, it's okay. Yeah. So you know, it's like at the University of Chicago, it's like, what do you, you know, are you going to have some great giant protest? Well, so far, no. So that mm-hmm. that's actually really good. Yeah. Well, I thought that part of it was great, but I was a little disappointed by the, um, I don't know, the, the recommendations that some of the uh, other presenters had speaking about more government as the solution to mm. the government, the problem that the government created and um, not really advocating for serious accountability. And I feel like if we don't have accountability, nothing ever changes. The, the reality is that there's this sort of two-tiered situation of rules for um, the ruling class, and then a separate set for us. And if we did a lot of the things that they did, we'd end up in prison, but they seem to walk scot-free. And I think as long as that persists, we've got a real problem in our country, frankly. And I was sort of, I don't know, maybe it's impolite. You know, you can tell me as an academic, is it just mm. that it's impolite and they don't want to be disinvited from polite company? And so they're very reluctant to actually criticize others. I mean, what is this, what's the scoop in your view on that? Well, I think I think of the people that you're thinking of. Um, maybe it's a, we'll just do it generically rather than calling out yeah. particular names. But no, I think the things that 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 those who were advocating for regulation and and certain kinds of government solutions simply just believe them, right? You and I may be more skeptical. Um, I I think they are still at a point where they trust the system sufficiently mm-hmm. that it they 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 see it as fixable. Um, you know, the the great benefit of being a medieval historian is I never trusted modernity in the first place. Um, and I also recognize that many of the you know the difficulties that we're having right now we've seen before over the co- long course of of history and you know including European medieval history 
at, at what point do you know who calls the king to account? Well, the barons. Who calls the barons to account? Well, <laughs> right. And that you know the government is is a is a complicated structure. We're dealing with the administrative state. We're dealing with the elected representatives. We're dealing with ju- judiciary. Um, uh, you know that it's it's which of those are you going to call out and who's going to be held responsible? I I I do think w- one of the thing one of the interesting things that's happening is is what's being exposed is the fiction of the sovereignty of the people. We clearly aren't right. Mm -hmm. The the people are not sovereign. Um, And, you know, we're back to, we're basically back to a medieval situation where you have a a number of very wealthy um, landholders and business people making the the, the government decisions. Now, whether or not, Essentially, like, the aristocracy never went away, right? Yeah, basically. <laughs> and I mean, it's interesting that, you know, the aristocracy of Virginia that crafted a, a number of our founding documents, um, they they didn't really believe in the people either, right? You know, they're, they're originally land, um, you know, land tenure re- requirements for voting and citizenship and things like that. Um, the, the problem is the obverse of that may not necessarily be the answer. It's like we we also, I think you and I share a, you know, a concern about it's like if everybody who happens to be standing on the soil of this country votes, that doesn't necessarily create the solution either because stakeholding in the community is, is, is very important. Um, so I, if if you want to, if we want to go into a, a sort of more complicated, you know, analysis of of political science, I'm I'm happy to try. That's not my forte, but I do think about it because of the lessons that we've had over the many centuries of developing the governmental structures that we have now, and we're watching them be, you know, tested to breaking point um, yeah. for sure. Uh, but uh, that's where on, on an opposite side there, there, I, you know, I have heard the argument. I think this is important to recognize that without the government, we have nothing to bind the aristocrats. Right. It's like theoretically, the government is actually the one the king, for example, you know, if, if we had a king is the only one that can stand up against the the aristocracy and say, stop exploiting your your people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I we need to have we need to have some better arguments, I think, about the way government works. And I'm not hearing anybody having those. No, absolutely yeah. not. In fact, this is what I heard from several of the participants at the uh, symposium. This, you know, we need more government. And I thought, hold on a minute. Yeah, government causes problem. How exactly is that going to fix it? I just, I don't see that. And I, and the other thing they said was with the purse strings. And I thought, listen, that's the problem right there. Is the forty to fifty billion dollars that NIH doles out yearly, yearly forty right. to. 50 billion dollars plus and that's just what NIH does then on top of that there's all the stuff from the pharmaceutical industry and the medical complex and all these others that actually captures the universities the research departments all of this stuff the hospitals everything the journals you know and so i don't see how more um um you know uh per string intervention is going to help when that's actually created the problem in the in the in the first place so i mean we could go down that but what i really want to talk about actually is, well, first of all, let's just talk about your experience in the last three and a half years, because we got connected through the University of Chicago's mandate. So people who may not know, I actually got my MBA from the University of Chicago, graduated from there, and then went to Wall Street from the University of Chicago. And I have a, um, my son is a student at the university. Um, And um, anyway, I want to just, let's just unpack for people what it was like for you to be there at this place that uh, holds itself up as a bastion of free speech and free expression. And um, it was a little surreal <laughs> for sure. Um, so it it, it was interesting. I mean, it's like we can go, I'm a, I'm a historian, so I can do chrono- chronological narrative. Although it's interesting with, with COVID um, a lot of what happened was a sort of blurring of time. I was like, I have to work really hard to remember when things happened in these last three years, uh-huh. because so many of our structures of, um, you know, timekeeping engagement, it's they're vanished, right? So it's, I think it's th- that of itself is a very interesting psychological um, uh, phenomenon. But so in January, February, 2020, I was um, teaching history of European civilization. And one of the things that happens in the history of European civilization is you think about the French Revolution a lot. <laughs> and you think about how 
this sort of crisis can build from one thing in May to, you know, the complete dissolution of the structures of government by August. Um, two, three years later, people are getting their heads chopped off. So <laughs> when in March 2020, suddenly the world started shutting down. I, I had this sense as a historian, it's like we're in for this, right? Mm-hmm. We're in for something that's going to take a few years to play out because of the the, the sort of feeling of, and I know Matthias Desmond has talked about, you know, the, the free-floating anxiety and things like that. And I have theories about where I think this is going. But there was, there was for me in March 2020, a very, very clear sense of it's never going to be only two weeks, right? It, 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 I could I could feel the shutters sh- closing. So I wasn't surprised as things played out in spring 2020. So we, we, you know, the university shut down, they sent all the students home. I had to teach online. I'd been practicing being online for other things for a while. So I said, okay, fine. I'm going to teach the best course I possibly can in this Zoom environment, keep my students happy, you know, sort of ramp things up. But what I noticed, one of the things I noticed immediately was we got lots and lots of emails that that spring offering money, right? You're worried about the money. There were instantaneously, you know, research projects that were going to be funding, you know, the COVID experience. And I'm like, what is going on? Right. The, 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 The first, the first thing was like, people are taking this as not an opportunity to try to, you know, do well in under these difficult circumstances, but they saw it as research opportunities. And that is, I mean, it's like, you want to be too super skeptical about academia. It, it, it obviously goes in fashions, right here, you know, here, we're going to do this crisis now and it likes crises. And, you know, I think the first thing a lot of my colleagues saw was this, oh, cool. We have a, we have a purpose, you know, a a, a mission, right? (laughs) We're going to document the way, you know, things played out under COVID. And I'm, you know, I'm saying on my blog, I know what's going to happen. Everybody's going to start making excuses for not doing their work, which is also what happened, right? I was saying just now, everybody lost their sense of time, Everybody lost their sense of, you know, it's I think I think people actually had this feeling that they were um, it it was a good thing to have an excuse not to do X, Y or Z. Right. All the conferences closed. Everybody, you know, you got you started getting emails saying, oh, I can't. It's covid. Right. And, And that for me, I wrote a blog post about this in May 2020, how what was going on was basically being captured by Sauron's ring. Right. We were we were one COVID to rule them all. And it was like sapping everybody's will to do stuff. Right. It's like you just like I have now an excuse not to do my work. Um, what that says about our our, you know, our society, our culture, our 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 spiritual health, I think, is is significant. <laughs> and you just could you just stop there for a moment and sure. just explain who that is, and what is ring? Is it Sauron or is it Saruman? I always forget the two. My son will always correct me. But oh, what okay. the ring is, what it represents, and and what you're talking about, and what what it symbolized. Absolutely, because so it's, maybe it's not in Tolkien. It's never- in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. No, I, I'm happy to I'm happy to explain it. I mean, for me, it was like the most resonant image of what was going on in in the Lord of the Rings. Sauron is disembodied, but he's made this this ring, this magic ring that its primary power is to control other people's wills. So that if you have this ring, uh, touch my rings, right? If you have this ring and know how to wield it, you can dominate other people's wills, right? And and that, I and I immediately said that that was the, the sort of propaganda that we were being put through of be, be afraid of, of this, this virus that was going out. I mean, do you remember, I mean, I'm sure you remember because you were paying attention, but like Johns Hopkins put up that, that website where there's, you know, the, the, and it was all in red and numbers and, you know, there's so much like fear propaganda over what a terrible crisis we were. I, I didn't, I promise you, I did not buy it for a second. Right. I, I, I'm, I'm a doctor's daughter. I grew up distrusting the way doctors, you know, ramp up the fear with diagnosis and fancy language and ignorance. Right. Because they actually typically, you know, they, what they have is good descriptions, uh, good fancy labels in Greek and Latin for things that mean plainly. I don't know what it is, but that's the word in Latin. <laughs> and so I was just watching all of this and I was I was seeing the 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 fear the projection of fear and i i just say it's sauron's ring it's sauron dominating people's wills with with terror can i just interject here that also remember so for people who haven't read the lord of the rings which i highly advise i read 
the whole, the four book set twice. <laughs> I don't know when I was probably 12 years old or something, 10, 11, 12. And um, um, I was absolutely mesmerized by it. But the, the, what I wanted to point out is that Sauron's ring sells you on the lure of something positive. So the magic ring allows Bilbo and then Frodo to actually disappear. Right. And so there's this kind of magical, this magical thing. And I think that there's, I don't know what you think about this, but you know, save grandma, do your part, flatten the curve, be virtuous, right? There was the lure, the allure of being good and doing good and playing your role. And so my point is that we, we have to remember that this ring, part of the way that you sell it is with some kind of, you know, carrot, right? I mean, is that an oh, yes. interpretation? Or no, that's exactly it. And that's what Gandalf, I said this in that blog post, one COVID to rule them all, right? One ring to rule them all. Gandalf says, if I had the ring, I'd be even worse because I'd be doing it out of good, right? And so, yes, you are absolutely right that that is the kind of spell casting that trapped everybody. And, and that's why I say when Desmond is saying, you know, there's this free falling anxiety, it's like, well, what it was, was, and I, I've done a, in my own video series, the Mosaic Arc, there's a video called Sauron's Mic. Mm-hmm. It, this was a media phenomenon, what Tolkien's writing in the 40s. And, you know, one of the things that happens in that is all the war propaganda, right? That, that, and, and the war propaganda in his lifetime was going over the radio. Sauron's tower, he has a tower where he's hidden and, you know, projects his power from. It's a radio tower, right? And, and if you think about the way which every, you know, the, the media was used to spread the fear of COVID, I, I was, I don't typically watch television. So, you know, I get my, news and things like that through social media and online. So I don't usually see the the broadcast media anymore, but like if I was in a hotel or something at the time, I would see it. And for example, when um, people started having to get the injections and you'd see nothing but people getting shots, right? It's like that kind of image uh, saturation. It's called brainwashing, right? Oh yeah. 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 And that's what the ring, that's what Tolkien understood the ring could do. It, it's like the media, um, that's invisible. It makes you invisible. Nobody sees it. Nobody recognizes where it's coming from. It's just suddenly all true now. That's absolutely what Sauron, Sauron's ring does. Yeah. It's so interesting. I mean, you think about, you go into an airport and there's the TV on just blaring at people, yep. you go, restaurants, gyms, it's everywhere. It's so, so Orwellian. It's incredible. Um, you know, I was having made the documentary, the greater good on vaccines and studied this kind of stuff for the last 20 years. I was very alert to what was going on from the very beginning in January. In fact, I said to my husband, you mark my words. This is the big one. It's the thing I've been worrying about for years and years. They're going to use this as an excuse to take away all of our rights and prevent us from traveling and prevent us from moving and do all this. And he was just like, oh, honey, don't be silly. I was like, I'm telling you it's coming anyway. Um, well, you were right. And that so and, and say that from different perspectives, I study, you know, historical moments like this. I mean, and 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 they're they're sort of they they take the crusades is another one, right? You can see people captured by uh, a sort of f- f- fervor of of a moment. They they don't last very long. They tend to last only three or four years. And so right now we can feel it now. It's like that's what that was the interesting thing about the conference. So we uh, one of the other reasons we wanted to have the conference is everybody's forgetting it already. Right. Is how, you know, how hard is it to remember how terrifying it was mm-hmm. watching the world shutter itself in well, for me, what was funny for me, the most terrifying part was watching people buy into it and comply. Mm-hmm. That's, That's what, what I, I mean. found. Yeah. yeah, like, yeah. Oh my gosh. How can you not see through this? How can you, how can you just lay down literally and let them walk on you and take away anything and everything that you have that's yours, essentially, when it comes to your rights and your freedoms and your liberties and your body and everything. And I just have to add in here as well that people have to, you know, I, I've spoken about this for the last three or four years repeatedly. They ch- Congress changed the law. There's a there's something passed every year called the National Defense Authorization Act, and it is the mechanism through which the Pentagon is funded. Okay, and in that act, the NDAA, they they stash all sorts of things in there. Well, in 2012, they removed the prohibition on the CIA propagandizing American citizens. Wow. Well, then yes. we, yeah, we this is Sauron, right? And okay, like, exactly. So my point is, they set it up. 
And then in, and, and, and the, the, the people who were criticizing this and saying, oh my gosh, this is really terrible. They were like, oh, don't worry. We're just repealing the smith Munt Act, which was the prohibition, but we're not setting up a program and we're not funding it. Well, in 2013, they set up the program in 2016, they funded it. So my point is that they were literally cementing their capture of the media in order to use it as nothing more than the propaganda arm of the government and the pharmaceutical industry, literally years before this happened. And I'm sorry, I mean, you can call me a tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorist. I don't care what name you call me. There is no way that you will convince me after all that I know and all I've seen that that was an accident. Oh, it absolutely was not an accident. But I, so, and what this is, it's like narrating this is, is, is nice for me because I actually haven't done this ever um, in, 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 you know, with someone who's, who knows what, you know, um, that no, but the, so you're asking me what it was like in academia. How many people, you know, in my own, like the faculty at the University of Chicago would even know what we're talking about? It's, it, it was that, so I was, so one, I saw, you know, all this, the people like saying, oh, we need to stay home. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This is just a, you know, this is a, a, a it's a live stream opportunity, whatever, but it's not, you know, this is, I, I seriously, seriously doubt that, that we're all about to die. Right. I never believed that. Um, but that it, it, to this day, I mean, even, even for our conference in, in May this year, it was, there were very few of my colleagues on campus that seemed to even recognize that anything odd just happened. Or bad had happened. Or right? that bad had happened. I mean, yeah. we did, we do have some of us, one, it took, it, you know, from our interaction that, that um, so the first year we were just shut down. Um, although I was actually on leave accidentally enough. So I wasn't planning on being on campus in autumn 2020 or winter 2021. Um, by spring 2021, I was back teaching on campus, but most of my colleagues weren't. We were only, you know, only um, we could ask to be on campus and I was perfectly happy with that, but I had like very small classes, you know, seminar size classes in lecture rooms, which was hilarious and, and, and hysterical. And the students were just desperate to like, yes, please teach in person. So I'm teaching a person in these giant rooms um, they had a mask mandate on us to mask while we were, te- while we were speaking. Of course, by that time, you know, in the national media, you could see the, you know, the, the press secretaries and things like that. They didn't have masks when they were talking to a masked room of people. And so I, you know, took mine off to teach. I was reported on by some, the room, the basically campus was nearly empty. Someone there, I remember the day there was, the door was open to the lecture hall and somebody in the hallway must've seen me. And they reported on me that I hadn't wearing a mask. And I got a visit from, you know, the university um, administration saying, why weren't you masked? And I said, well, cause I was teaching. Um, and one of the students in my class, Declan Hurley was, you know, with the Chicago thinker and, you know, he has um, hearing impairment. He since wrote a letter to the Wall Street Journal saying this is this is, you know, for those of us who can't hear, this is a this damages our education not to be mm-hmm. able to hear our professors. Right. And then they changed the they changed some of the requirements for some. It, they kept changing with the mask rules, which, again, as a doctor's daughter, I always thought was ridiculous in the first place because none of these things had any they didn't mean anything. Right. They were no. obvious performance. And I also I, I on my blog, I wrote several posts about what I saw happening psychologically and spiritually with the masks, right. That they were, I mean, a lot of people have talked about them as training and compliance and things like that. I, I see them also as a phenomenon that's coming out of the social media context of like in, in Facebook, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with this, you know, for a number of years when anything happened, people would all change their profile pictures. So they'd all have the same flag or the same colors or this or that, you know, that this, the sort of, I saw the masking as very much that that social phenomenon of not wanting to stand out. It's very hard to go against what the rest of the group is doing, even when you know that it's nonsense. Mm-hmm. What what I what I did find frustrating was how you know how few colleagues I found on campus who actually also could say this. Yeah. Like, do you understand how ridiculous this is? It's scientifically idiotic, <laughs> and everybody's you know. You know, to this day, there were still there. I mean, I still have colleagues, you know, faculty members who are masking in meetings. And I'm just saying that you can't be serious. No, it's incredible, isn't it? So is your dad still alive, Rachel? No, he died in 2005. Okay. But but he was, uh, you know, it's like I, I, so 
the fast forwarding a little bit, this this poem that we're working on in the Dragon Common Room, Draco Alchemicus, I we just finished a Kickstarter to to help publish our first volume. So be coming out in six months. Yay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I did a, a, a Twitter post on Father's Day about how much I miss my father. He was, I'll cry at this point, right? He was a heart surgeon, um, but he was also a trauma surgeon and he served in Vietnam. Um, he served in Thailand during the Vietnam conflict. Um, he was a car mechanic and a pilot and a pipe smoker and a mathematician. And he was also, <laughs> you know, a great detector of false, you know, false language. We will not use that word politely here, but the the sort of mystification of science, right? Like we said, we call the poem Draco Alchemicus because it's meant to sound magical and mystical. No, it's like you've been you've been bamboozled by scientific names totally. into believing that there's actually something behind this. And uh, you know, I'm grateful to my father for for having that wisdom to say, you know, you you realize when doctors talk, they're they're they also have a social performance to keep up their, you know, appearance of knowledge. And if you know Latin, you know they have almost none. Anatomy anatomy lessons in Latin, totally. which make it sound like they're they're saying something that's mysterious and 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 you know um removed from local knowledge, but it's no, that's a Latin name for the same thing. Yeah. I'm actually working on a blog and it's called the cult of the expert Yeah, about, um, you know, if you look back, most people don't know this, but doctors were not highly paid, highly respected members of society. They weren't low, but they were nothing special until the Flexner report was introduced in 1910. And then Congress basically consolidated the power of the, um, in, in, in obeisance to, uh, John D. Rockefeller and uh, J.P. not J.P. Morgan, um, Andrew Carnegie. But basically, what happened was they increased. They actually implemented standardization and licensure of the medical schools. And there were all kinds of medical schools before that. And there were right. all kinds of healthcare practitioners and people who gave pharmaceutical drugs were not higher up on the totem pole. They weren't called doctor. They weren't well-paid. They didn't wear stethoscopes. They didn't, you know, have their title. They didn't wear white lab coats. They were no different than homeopaths and naturopaths and herbalists and doulas and midwives. They were another one and they were very accessible to all the people, but they were dispensing what was then actually snake oil. They were actually the ones who were selling drugs and things that harmed people. And, um, but, you know, Rockefeller was a chemical magnet. And so he wanted to um, solidify pharmaceutical medicine as the primary type of medicine that would be rolled out across the country. And that, and, and uh, uh, Congress basically obliged. That's what happened literally. So it's so refreshing to hear of physicians who actually recognize that there were all these problems and push back, but what you were just talking about. Well, so my, can I say my dad, my dad definitely did. And my father, he was, so he was a professor of surgery and um, you know, had, had experience in war, right. Because of his, his time in Thailand, his, his own, his father was also in the military um, served in Burma in world war two. Um, and one, my dad said, he always used to say that people didn't know, if you, you don't understand with the history of medicine, how much of it comes out of war, because you have a lot of bodies to practice on <laughs> because of the young men they're getting hurt. Um, but also he always used to say, you know, the only reason doctors could do anything is because the body heals itself. It's it's the the, the kind of hubris of we're going to figure out, exa- no, it's like you, you basically, the, base, the most important thing you do is stop the bleeding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you know, keep, uh, and dad also in his last years, he was studying infection because a a lot of problems with like how bacterial colonies set themselves up and how they can grow and things like that. But he said, you know, most, most of what doctors do depends on the body's own abilities and, and to pretend that we can override that is criminal. And, 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 and therefore, yes, I, I absolutely agree with your description of the, the situation. Well, I wish I could have met your dad, but I think that's um, a good segue into this next topic, which is you talk about mythology and symbolism of the internet. And I think the masks is just like, um, you know, flags and other things that people will put up to indicate that they are part of the club and that they are virtuous members of society. Tell us what you mean um, about um, the dragon of coercion and storytelling and history and how this all works together um, to actually coalesce into this control system, essentially, which is what we've been living through. Um, 
Well, so we've actually already been talking about it because one of the yes. things I wanted to, to show was the way in which most of what Sauron does depends on stories, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, and and you've you've been pointing it to it's like it's all it's all a story. It, if then you know if you don't do this, you'll hurt your grandmother. Gotcha. Um, and with things like you know teaching the Lord of the Rings, it's interesting. Which of the things gave me the capacity to understand what was going on? Was it having taught a lot of history and the you know the French Revolution and the wars and things like that, so you know how these these phenomenon of, you know, persuasion and, and, and uh, mobilization happen, or is it because I teach Tolkien and and you can see stories help you what, you know, watch the way all of these choices are made Um, in, in the Lord of the Rings, you know, the the characters having to deal with the, the ring, give you models of, you know, Boromir wants it and he wants to, you know, save his city. Right. Okay. So you have that model of, you know, you could be, you know, wanting to wield it. If I have this weapon, it'll, I'll use it for good. Gandalf says, oh, I know what I would do with that. So please, you know, don't offer me. Galadriel says, um, you know, if I had it, all, you know, all would love me in despair. And what's interesting about stories is um, they, well, what, I guess that, that, that they're sort of, I haven't asked anybody that's asked me that quite directly. Uh, they stick in your mind, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think they have, it, it's not that they have simpler structures, but they, is it that they personify an idea or they allow you to connect to it viscerally? I mean, what do you think it is about it? Because well, I think so I just, I just did a, a, a marathon live stream a couple nights ago with three storytellers. <laughs> we were all talking about things. So I can give you what I learned from that. Um, we had a comic artist, a novelist and um, a, a sort of theological um, screenwriter. Mm-hmm. Right. And so each of them were showing us things and the comic artist was really focusing on character um, saying he keys the Chuck Dixon, he created Bane, the the uh, Batman supervillain. Um, and so when you ask Chuck what he does, he's like, well, I create characters and I really want to get in the character. And you, you have to create characters that people want to like be involved with and empathize with. So I think the first thing stories do is give you that um, reflection, right? That it's either a mask or a reflection that, that and particularly in comic books, because the the drawings are simple people look at them and they they can see themselves in them like mirrors i and so i say it's like socially we do that right we imitate each other mm-hmm. so getting inside a story is looking for the i mean it's not that you're looking for the character that you want to be but there's that ability to see other human choices and behaviors through that character that you can understand right so character identification make things meaningful to us Mm-hmm. and and understandable um with the novelist he's um he's also a physicist and uh, studies um wideband antennae and electrical magnetism and so he does techno thrillers right <laughs> um and he he's very there therefore very interested in um a sort of story pattern and if you he's he's just written a you might enjoy his book he's just written a book called the wise of heart which is a retelling of the scopes monkey trial only from the perspective of the transgenderism debate <laughs> and in oh, wow. a sort of courtroom drama right and so he's like he's doing like i do with history and looking at patterns and human behavior is is very complicated but also very um once you get in the character place you can start seeing how um decision making has certain effects right and i think that's what hans my friend hans um Schantz is is trying to show that you can understand these complexities of system in a story like if when i when i was studying history um you know i still do but a lot in graduate school i read a lot of historical novels because they help you get in the character get in the complexity of the situation and see it w- the way the decisions of the people at the time made things play out. So mm-hmm. story helps with that. And then the screenwriter um, is Patrick Coffin, my friend Patrick Coffin. He was talking about how, in fact, all stories that people actually find themselves drawn to positively are, in fact, the gospel. And I'm like, oh, I like this, right? <laughs> it's like the greatest story ever told is the structure of truth in creation to revelation. And then he gave some examples like, Little Orphan Annie and Saving Private Ryan and E.T., that you can see how the the sort of problem of the character, the Christ figure, who enters into the story and faces up to the 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 um threat. I mean, in our sense, the dragon threat, uh trains you to understand how to deal with the dragon when it comes. And I I say that that certainly helped me with you know COVID and recognizing it as Sauron, that's the dragon there, where you can learn from these parables 
how to have courage, how to make good choices, how to recognize the the fear that is being placed on you and that therefore stories at that level can help train us in virtue. And that's what really in the Dragon Common Room we're sort of aiming for. It's like we make the characters, we set them up in these in these situations, but we want the stories that we have told to do like monastic um, meditations did of showing you the the battle of the virtues and vices that you're in to psychomachia and that in fact you know great literature tends to that right you're in that drama of um how the characters learn to virtue means strength right it's the strength of your soul how where does the strength of your soul come from yeah really well said beautifully well said um it's it's really interesting to contemplate all of these different, you know, some would say myths, some would say stories. I mean, just historically, I'm talking about things from a, I don't know, um, you know, um, something that Camus might've written to uh, things that Hemingway wrote, right? You know, the, the whole, the hero, the person that helps inspire us to all be our greatest, right? I mean, there's something about it. And I know in my own inner work and my own, um, spiritual development over many decades. One of the things that I've always learned and considered is, you know, who are the things that you, who are the people that you most look up to in history? Mm -hmm. One of my teachers said to me many, many years ago that those people, like if you write down a piece of paper, who put down, and so I'll invite all of our um, viewers to write down three people. Who are their three heroes? Okay. And then you write down who are the three people that you hate the most. And those, you know, we're all a mixture of good and bad, light and dark, right? And um, um, if you own those people that you revere the most, who are your heroes, are the ones that you you haven't really owned your own power and your own ex, your own inspiration and your own ability to stand up and be the, the, the full person that God sent you here to be. Mm-hmm. And the people that you reject um, represent the parts of yourself that you haven't fully acknowledged yet. It's very interesting, like a psychological kind of aspect to it. But I think the stories are just reflective of that same kind of idea that mm-hmm. we are relating to something that touches us in some way. And in some ways, it's very positive, And maybe it touches something that we wish we could be more like this person. Um, or there's people that, you know, we're like, well, we don't like that. Cause you know what? I don't like that aspect of myself. Right. So right. it's very, very interesting. So let's talk a little bit about, um, you were clearly not, um, snowed <laughs> by the story that was being peddled early in 2020, but there's a difference between not being snowed by that and actually also, wanting to oppose mandates and standing for health freedom. So help us understand why you took that stance, why it was important to you and just your thoughts on that. So I'm, we've already talked about my father, which, which helps in that, um, that again, I, you know, it's not just my father, my, my mother, my grandfather, her father, I'm, I'm everybody in my family's doctors. <laughs> um, and you know, that, that does help you one recognize the, you know, the levels of, of both skill they have and also limitation. The primary problem, you know, what used to be the primary, excuse me, I have a hair in my mouth. No worries. Uh, what used to be the primary practice in medicine was a second opinion. Um, and that, you know, the, your doctor, you, you talk to your doctor, but your doctor is not meant to tell you what to do. Your doctor is meant to advise you on options. And, you know, recognizing that doctors might have different experience, might have different backgrounds, might, I mean, my dad is a, as a surgeon, right? He trained, he was a professor, uh, you know, you, in order to train as a doctor, you need to see lots and lots and lots and lots of cases because you are, you know, generalizing from the things that you've seen, older doctors have seen more and, you know, have a wider range of, of examples to, to work off of, but nobody's seen everything and people, you know, so you should have a second opinion. Why should the government be telling us what medicines to take that it, it it's like the, the, it, why should the government be telling us what to eat? Why should it, the, why should anybody be telling you how to care? I mean, in, in the sense of, you know, we shouldn't even have this probably national public education, right? All of these things should be training in care for your body and soul. And that one of my, you know, my deep 
furious at these this mandate thing was one the threats that were used it's like oh you know you're you're going to damage us well the obviously illogic there is well if you think that medicine works then i can't hurt you because the vaccine would have hurt helped you know done what it was supposed to do <laughs> prevent you from getting sick um, but the 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 mandating of treatment when even and that the doctors were going along with this, even within the medical profession, you should not be forced to take anything that the doctor suggests to you. And my father, one of the things my father, of course, dealt with with as a heart surgeon was he's often having to care for much older people. You know, someone in their 80s who, you know, has blocked arteries is not a great candidate for open heart surgery. <laughs> And, you know, if their family's sitting there saying, do whatever you can, doc, save them. And, you know, my dad says, that's torture, right? There's at some point intervention is not medicine. It's, it's Frankensteinian manipulation of the body. So I, you know, I, I, I could, you know, I, I had, you know, objections in the spiritual sense too, of, of having these kinds of mandates, but that, Again, that the, the medical profession seemed to be going along with this kind of coercive treatment. It horrified me. Yeah, it's unreal. You know, um, in the in 1905, we had this lawsuit that went in front of the Supreme Court. It's called Jacobson versus Massachusetts, and in that lawsuit, um, the Supreme Court ruled that it was acceptable for Cambridge, Massachusetts, to mandate the smallpox vaccine because there was. 30 to 40% of the people who were getting smallpox were dying. So it was an extreme situation. And they said for anybody who didn't actually want to um, take the shot, they could pay a fine. Nowhere did they say that that the government had the right to plunge a needle into your arm or take you to a doctor and let the doctor plunge a needle into your arm. But that's how this has been construed. And it's been used as cover in the last, you know, many actually years, not just the last three or four years, but it's been becoming more and more common in the last 10 or 15 years to rely on that lawsuit as a justification for taking away people's rights. And so there's been this war on um, removing exemptions to vaccines as more and more parents and adults have woken up to the um, true ramifications of injecting this whole spectrum of um let's just say ingredients, many people would say toxic ingredients into your body. Um, what's happened is they recognize that they have a problem. And so they've started using ad hominem attacks and hurling any kind mm -hmm. of insult they possibly can at these people. And what's really notable is that if you look at the past 60 years or so, there's been several, probably four or five different lawsuits that went in front of the Supreme Court. And in the Supreme Court, ultimately ruled in each of those cases that you have a zone of privacy around your body, which they cannot, which is into which the state cannot intrude, that you have the right to refuse um, life extending medical treatment, just like mm -hmm. what you were saying, that you have the right to refuse medical interventions that might save your life. So not just life saving, but anything that might actually save your life, you can just choose not to take it. All these things. And we've got all of these um, international treaties and um, uh, acknowledgments that, you know, it's inhumane and unethical and positively diabolical to force any kind of medicine on a human being. It's crazy. And yet we've gotten here. And what I'm still sort of trying to unpack is how we got here. I have lots of theories on why that is, but I would love to hear your thoughts on that. And I just have to say, oh, very quickly, that, me... that's what our poem's about. <laughs> oh, cool. Cool. <laughs> So let me just say one other thing, you know, I had my, a beloved dog. He was 12 and a half years old and literally he was like my second child and he was 12 and a half and he was a big 90 pound Labrador. And one night I'd been very, very sick for a long time. I took him for a walk and I said to myself, actually in the afternoon when I walked him, I said to myself, you know what? I think I'm going to make it. And I, that was probably around two o'clock in the afternoon. And then at five o'clock, 5.30, I walked him again. As we're walking down the driveway, I said to myself, you've still got lots of time in your in you, buddy, you know, because he's, he's he was sort of old and getting arthritis and stuff like that. And I said to myself, oh, you've got tons of time left. I came inside. I fed him at 5.30 and he never, ever was able to lie down again. And he paced and paced. His stomach flipped. Oh, yeah. Okay. His stomach flipped. We didn't know. We took him to the vet. We were doing all these things for seven or eight hours. And finally, at 1.30 in the morning, the vet said, listen, 
we can do surgery on it, but his stomach's flipped. First, they thought it was gas and all this stuff. They said his stomach is flipped and we can do surgery on him. But at 12 and a half years old, for a dog of that size, I mean, most of them don't even make it to 10, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and, and it's exactly what you said. That would have been so cruel. And the right. thing is, who are we doing it for? We would have done it for us. And so we actually did what we thought was the compassionate thing. And we put him down. And I mean, it was heartbreaking. We went home that night. I'm going to cry myself. And we sobbed, you know, none of us could sleep, but it was the right thing to do. And we all have to acknowledge that our time here is not unlimited and that we come here um, to have this physical experience for a reason. And um, it's not for us to decide. I don't think that doesn't mean that I wouldn't try and save the life of my child or whatever, but at some point, we have to acknowledge that we're not God, we are not in mm-hmm. control, and that our life is limited, you know? So with that, that's kind of a downer maybe, but tell us about what I was saying before about, um, I've now how lost- did we, How did we get here? Oh, weeping, sorry. Yeah. No, and the thing is, I, I, my, my own dog who was 11 died in um, October, 2020 and went through a similar sort of choice. Um, and 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 then the the fancy words that they were using for something that they had no idea what was going on and 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 giving me suggestions of you know further we could do further tests and I'm like one it was it was in COVID and so I you know they took her into the emergency vet and I'm on the phone with them and I'm like let me in so that I can sit with her and I got to sit with her for an hour before they they um, stopped her heart um, and you know saying yeah you could you could keep doing things but you haven't figured out what this is. And, and, and this is now torture. Yeah. So uh, being able to appreciate when it's, when it's realistic and that's, you know, thankfully that was one of the things my father was trying to work on because he did trauma surgery. And he said, you know, when people are hurt in an accident, you, there are certain tests you can do the Glasgow coma scale to tell whether or not they're going to wake back up. Hmm. And it's, and it's a fairly good diagnostic. And that, that was the sort of thing he really wanted to do because he wanted to figure out at what point is it simply cruel because the body's not going to heal itself at this point. And you have to get more sort of humble about the degree of, of perfection that you can get. Hmm. All of, I mean, all of the people who died in the nursing homes alone over the last several years, that just, yeah, we, if we, if we go there, we're both going to start crying. And it's like, and I'm trying to dry it up right now. Yeah. Anyway, so let's talk yeah. about how. So we... how do we get here? Yes. Well, sin sin is the first step. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, there's there's the, the thinking about Sauron's ring is the radio and the media and such like that. That this is the story of human civilization, right? And it's like you could say this: the Tower of Babel is is part of this. It's our constant temptation with our knowledge and tool making to you know create structures and interventions and in in the in the sort of deep mythology of things like genesis and some of the angel stories from from antiquity it's the fallen angels that give us things like cosmetics and and um weaponry like metallurgy and and Mm -hmm. illusion making with with cosmetics that we've always been in this this sort of twinned problem of we can be like gods or we can acknowledge ourselves as creatures and that we can work with God in our art and in our science and our, our crafts, or we can try to take control. Remember what Sauron's ring is, right? It's, it's always that desire for domination and control. And in modernity, I say as medievalist, I've always been skeptical of modernity. Um, modernity is that's, it's a great mission, right? It goes back to in, in our poem, Draco Alchemicus, um, the the sort of animating themes are both um, Edmund Spencer's Fairy Queen, which is a mythologizing of Elizabeth as, of Queen Elizabeth the first as the you know Gloriana of the the empire. So the you know the the imperial control of the world the British accomplished for a time. The American empire is its heir, and we're <laughs> losing that right now. Um, that so that's one the political ex- extension of commerce and things like that but there's the other twin of it is um francis bacon's vision in the new atlantis which is it's his own sort of myth this this story of there's this island out in the pacific that has solomonic wisdom um they're christian because somehow the gospel showed up to them in a little chest that floated on the oceans and 
they have all of these um, houses of experiment that are, you know, doing, he's writing this in the early 17th century and the houses of experiment are doing things like, um, it could be like New Jersey with all of its taste uh, labs that make all of our artificial flavorings. Now they have this in the new Atlantis <laughs> in the, in his imagination, right? They're going to make, you know, different flavors and, 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 and scents and things like that. They're going to make buildings that are half a mile high. Well, we got one of those in Dubai now. Um, all of these, you mm-hmm. know, what he called houses of research, which has in fact been since the 17th century, you know, it's it's in the British American Anglo tradition. Of all of this sort of science as control. We've been working on it for centuries now, yeah. and you can see that that the the way people responded to COVID. One, you know, it's obvious. We all knew it was some kind of lab produced thing from the beginning as well, right? That the bat. The I, I remember telling my making jokes in February 2020, and Euro said, "Don't eat bat the bat soup." It's like that was always nonsense. Um, that's one side of it. We're going to make bioweapons to, you know, come after our enemy. It's like, oh, well, no, we can't, we can, therefore we should try. It's like, that is always our temptation. That's what the ring is about. It's always like, oh, we could control these things. And then the opposite, oh, we're going to lock the society down and absolutely control the outcome here. Again, it's the same temptation over and over and over again. I would say it's even maybe one of the most primal, um, instincts in human beings is to the attempt to try and make order out of chaos. It's, it's very uncomfortable for most people, right? Like, yeah. And the, and the world, I mean, listen, it is kind of chaotic, right? There's all this, but it's also beautiful at the same time, right? It's this like massive symphony of um, people and activities and, and, um, and nature and all these things. And it can be quite brutal at times and it can be quite beautiful at times. And I think, you know, as a younger person, I always used to think that that was man's biggest um, impulse was to try and make order out of chaos. But what I didn't really fully grasp was that the ultimate objective was really truly control, right? That's where they really, where the, they can, these people, these overlords, I think, take that natural human instinct and they try and co-opt it with control in order to, and then use it against everyone. And I think that's what's the most perhaps insidious part of everything that's going on. And, and, and what depressed me the most was watching everyone just freaking lay down. Seriously. Lay oh, down me too. And I'd say that Tol- Tolkien is a great antidote. Well, in the sense of having, you have a story to pay attention to what's going on because that tension between art as something that praises God participates in the creation is, you know, um, you know, music and, and, and craft and beauty. It's like we can work. I think our desire to make is appropriate but his characters, you know, throughout his legendarium, are are beset with the temptation of of of, you know, grasping, right? And that's what Gollum becomes, right? He wants his precious, right? Mm-hmm. And and so you can see that you can see it. You can and you can also train yourself in virtue. This is why we do need training in virtue to deal with these situations where you're envious of somebody else's skill. You are, you know, frustrated with somebody because they won't do what you want. You are trying, you know, that th- that difficulty that we have of allowing God's will, but also recognizing that we can't, we're, it's appropriate for us to make and invent and create, but then we, the, our own creations can turn, turn on us insofar as we become possessive of them. Yeah, very much yeah. so. So will you touch on, you've been a, you've been at the University of Chicago for nearly 30 years. Would you touch on how you have watched the student body and campus life evolve over those nearly three decades? Because mm. my guess is you've watched quite a transformation. And then would you just perhaps comment on why you, what you think is behind the changes that you're witnessing? Well, the primary transformation is the college has grown. Um, the, the college administration, Dean Boyer, made a very concerted effort to in- expand it. Mm-hmm. Um, some of that was, I think, financially necessary um, in the in the sense that colleges live off their alumni donations <laughs> um, and other gifts and, and things like that. And so not having alumni from the, the classes, they were very conscious of this as a necessity for the long-term health of the institution. Um, they also decided that they very much wanted to be up in the competition with the coastal schools. So the Ivy Leagues and Stanford and Berkeley and such. Um, I do know that you know the the deans of these schools have regular meetings. 
they are a there's a single network of elite schools. And one of the characteristics of an elite school is um, selectivity of admissions. So the admissions um, uh, department, or what do we call them? The, the admissions office, you know, expanded very greatly its marketing of our school, which, you know, I'm, I, 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 you know, I don't know whether this is a bad or good thing, right? I, I do think one of the one of the features of it is our our tuition went up in harmony with the other expensive places, and of course that's funded by and fed by the student loan um, Bu- bubble bubble, <laughs> right? And so that's bad. Um, they they did expand their you know outreach into the high school so that we have a much bigger applicant pool and therefore can be more selective. Yeah. And so the primary thing that I've noticed is we I, mean, I have absolutely outstanding students. I, I love my students. I love teaching at the University of Chicago. I love the kind of students we attract. I mean, we still do. And I made a point of this over the last several years since Dean Ellison and Dean Boyer's letter about no safe spaces. Typically, our students come because they see our school as the top of the academic freedom pyramid. And that I'm very happy about. And mm-hmm. our students are very happy about it. They come and 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 hope for that to be real, right? And I think for the most part it is. I mean, we are liberal school in the usual um, uh, situation of of the int- intelligentsia, the elite, and so they get you know some friction among each other. Um, but, but how? What about like? Let me ask you from this standpoint: If COVID had happened twenty five years ago. How do you think the reaction on campus would have would have differed from what the reaction was in the last few years? I don't know. That's a really good question. Um, I guess, you know, the thing is, have you seen campus life? Is there, you know, I mean, I've talked to students who are there who say that it's not as um, as free as claimed, that there's not as much free speech that right. there's, you know, and do you, do you feel like the... I mean, you said yourself that not very many professors and um, associate professors actually stood up, that there's some of them are still masking, you know, that, I mean, how much do you think there is really, truly independent thinking about all these matters and how much have they been trained to defer to um, authority? It's just, it seems to me like this is something that's fairly pervasive across our country. I think that only Hillsdale of all schools didn't lock down. I mean, maybe there were a few others, but that's the one I know the most. And so I just wonder, like, it seems to me that people would have been far more rebellious 25 years ago or 30 years ago than they were now. Now. Okay. Well, I think I, so the, the situation that I described to you about the way the applicant pool has changed and the expense it's very hard to get into the university of chicago and they didn't want to be kicked out yeah i think that's the big thing 60% admission rate and so right exactly you grab the golden ring you don't want to get kicked out you don't want to get kicked out and i think that that affected it so you know i certainly you know have been outspoken about it my students in i so after i was reprimanded about the mask wearing i had to you know go along with that. Although I did, I, you know, I, because I recognize this as theater, um, I bought some like specially decorative masks from a belly dancer outfit. <laughs> I looked very beautiful in my mask. And and I also, what I also realized is the belly dancer masks had beads and stuff. And so they move, right. One of the, the to me, horrifying effects of those masks was your face was rigid. Mm-hmm. Right. And that the, 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 dancing dancer masks had life in them still. And, and so I, I wore those when I was in the halls on, on campus and saying, look, I masked, but this is theater. Mm-hmm. Um, the students I, in my classes, I did like um, in winter, I'm back to, you know, I teach Eurosiv every other year and I went back in the, back in Eurosiv in the winter of 2022 and we still had a mask mandate on campus. I took my mask off and I said, okay, I am speaking now as myself. Please talk to your parents because I appreciated that it was only going to come from the actual students and their, their families that the administration would hear anything. Cause they certainly weren't listening to the faculty. Um, and as you know, we were employees, so we had to go along with the, the employee di- re- restrictions. And I said, look, I'm speaking as myself here. I have to put this back on to teach you, which is, I don't want, but I don't think this is, I personally don't think this is appropriate. 
Um, and the students seemed to appreciate that, but they didn't want to get kicked out. And they saw what was happening with, you know, mm-hmm. they were being reported on and, you know, the thinker students that covered the the situations like Arthur Long's, where, you know, if they they didn't have the vaccines and they were, they were you know, prevented from participating in student life fully and restrictive ways that were seemed arbitrary and capricious and, and so forth. So I think the, the problem is that good students are the ones that understand the rules. Mm-hmm. And, and so they just didn't want to fight it because, you know, I think in, 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 I think also compassionately for them, they, you know, they've been given a lot of rules in their life that didn't seem to make a lot of sense. And they appreciate, you know, there's, I can, you know, this is not worth fighting at the moment. Mm-hmm. And, and they're not, they're, they're younger. So they're not, you know, you, you and I are of an age and we say, no, fight this. this. We've got to fight this. We've seen this. We remember what the 70s and 80s were like, right? It's like we can remember how things did and didn't change because somebody said something then. And they don't have that experience yet. So I said, I've said this to the thinker students that I talked to. Remember this. It will happen again, right? Yeah. These these kinds of apocalyptic fevers recur generationally. I I in my first book from Judgment to Passion, I talk about the ones around the year 1000 and you know and then 1033 and then 1065 and then 1099, mm-hmm. right? They do seem to they do seem to repeat generationally. So whatever we've just lived through, it will come back in in the sort of as the generations play through and I was telling my you know our students now, you will know this when you're in your 40s and 50s and it comes again. Mm-hmm. You'll recognize it. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it, it brings us back to that, um, adage that, you know, (laughs) if we don't know history, we are doomed to repeat it. And that seems very much the case. I'm a student of a, um, a person named Martin Armstrong. He has a website called armstrongeconomics.com and he has the largest data set of all sorts of things in the world, going back 5,000 years, looking at climate and, political situation systems and countries and currencies and everything that you can imagine disease and language and all these things coins it's all you know he's he's a history buff and a computer buff and he just says that we just do the same stuff over and over again because people don't learn in human nature you know it's really well crazy. we can't right it's like it's generational because new people are born right and so but i think we can we, but I think we could if we actually educated ourselves properly. And the truth is, if you ask yes, me, the modern should study history, the educational system is designed to do the exact opposite of that. Yes, I think so. I mean, that so the, the present educational system, again, everybody be a medievalist. And then you get like a, at least a counterexample to mm-hmm. the things that we have now. And that, they, you know, be a situation that most of my colleagues in academia study modernity. I mean, even in my own department, we don't we don't have that many quote pre-modernists, which means before 1800. Mm-hmm. So they don't have enough um, comparative cycles to to look at. the 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 public education system that we're talking about is the same age as the the medical system that you're describing, right? It's around 1900 or or 1910, and we are what I one of the things I work on, you know, sort of in the context of the things I study in the Middle Ages is the monasteries, and if you study the monastic, you know, tradition, there's a reform every hundred years or so, right? There's Benedict Nursia founds his monasteries because they're, you know, needing to reform from the previous, right? That's in like the sixth or seventh century. And uh-huh. then the Carolingians come along and they have to reform their monasteries about 200, 100 years or so. Then there's another set of reforms in the 10th century. And then there's another set of reforms in the 11th century. Institutions, you know, it's not Weberian in the, you know, charismatic structure thing, but it's, it is that, the founding generation understands certain problems. The people who inherit that find it as functioning institution. The third or fourth generation don't appreciate why it works the way it does and it starts breaking down. So, you know, the University of Chicago was founded in 1890. We're about due, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, for a giant reform because that's that's the problem of um, institutional memory. Yeah, well, it's also it also reinforces that book generations and mm-hmm. the fourth turning Neil Howe. And I forget who the other author is, but very, very interesting. We are in the winter. Now we had a winter. We were in a winter in um, 1776. We were in winter in 1865. We were in winter during world war two and we're in winter again. Now 
through yeah. through around 2032. It's very very fascinating. So you just mentioned, um, you know, would you would you recommend a book if someone wanted to learn more about medieval history? If there was one volume that they could read, what would it be? And then would you tell everybody where they can find you, Rachel? And follow. There's you? only one book you should read. My book. <laughs> okay. Which one? <laughs> um, well, okay. So from Judgment to Passion gives you a sense of the sort of over several hundred years development of prayer, prayer life to Christ and Mary. And that will give you, from my perspective, the the problem that we are in and thinking about how culture changes. I mean, this is, I'm also, you know, so obviously in the culture wars, but I'm also recognizing that culture is always dynamic and people are always borrowing and adapting from it. And I show in that first book, how certain things that we think of as, you know, quintessentially necessary to Christianity actually come out of the, the, the engagement with other cultures in the conversion of Europe. So that one, maybe people would enjoy. And then um, Mary in the Art of Prayer is more a sort of handbook for if you want to understand what their world looked like. And I think this is, you know, if we don't understand, everybody says that we want empathy. Like, can you imagine yourself in somebody else's situation? Well, here, <laughs> do it with the actual prayer life of medieval Christians by way of their reading of the scriptures. And then you you have another frame of understanding to to see our our present day with so i that's why i would recommend my books if you if you're wanting to start somewhere okay and then where can people find you um so the easiest place to find me is dragoncommonroom.com um it's the website that i put up for my poetry writing group but it's now been expanded over the last um month or so to include there's a whole page of study guides that has links to all of my um, readings in different contexts that I've done. There's some online courses that I have. There's my syllabi from the University of Chicago. Um, there's reading lists for the poem that we're working on, which includes some of the things about this historical development of the drug trade, which we should have talked about too, but <laughs> um, you know, the spice trade and the drug trade, and that goes into the alchemical sort of um passion and possession of modernity so dragon common room is the place to go to find links to everything else that i do super rachel it's been a real pleasure to have you on thank you so much for joining me today thank you for having me i've I've enjoyed it thanks so much for listening to conversations on health freedom please follow us at healthfreedomdefense.org where you can become a member subscribe to our newsletter donate to our cause and follow us on social media.